Welcome to the busy Latter-day Saint, where righteous desires and living life come together. Here, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints discuss their challenges and successes in studying the scriptures. I'm your host, Richard Bernard. The music for this program is by Marvin Goldstein and used with his permission. Please give this podcast a thumbs up and tap the subscribe button. When you subscribe and give it a rating, it increases the show's rating and makes it easier for people to find. If you have any comments or would like to request to be a guest on the podcast, feel free to email me. Additionally, if you have someone in mind who would make a great guest, please let me know. To receive updates on the Gospel Library and news about this podcast, be sure to add your email to my website. I only email once a week, and rest assured that your emails will not be sold. Links to my email and website is in the show notes. My guest today is Laura Ulrich, a retired professor from Harvard University. She raised a family when societal expectations for women focused on homemaking. She not only met those expectations, but later became a Pulitzer Prize winning author, a historian of early church history, and the one responsible for the catchphrase, well-behaved women seldom make history. It was a pleasure spending time with Laura, and I could have listened to her stories about the history and early years of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for hours. She is truly a delightful person, and I'm sure that you'll find that to be true. And now, here's Laura. Laura, welcome to the podcast. What's the weather like back in Pennsylvania? Uh, It's gorgeous. Um, Cherry blossoms, all kinds of blossoming trees everywhere. The tulips are going to go by pretty quickly. They've been up for quite a long time. We haven't had much winter. And uh, it seems like spring has been coming for more than a month, you know, with the first little flowers. But it's uh, the leaves are on the trees now coming out. It's really beautiful. Uh, that's not the case in Utah. We just finished our winter, I think, last week. <laughs> that's, that's what I hear. But I also hear that's a, maybe a good thing because I know there was a lot of fear about floods. Yes. If it came past. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We've been praying and praying for moisture for a few years, and the Lord blesses us, and now we got to deal with the floods. <laughs> That's great. So, yeah. But hopefully, no homes will be damaged because of it. But they're starting to get out sandbags and things like that uh, for the areas that are going to have the problem. Well, Laura. I knew nothing about you until I met you at BYU when you spoke for the uh, Woodruff Foundation. And I then approached you and I said, I'd like to have you on my podcast because I was just amazed about what uh, you talked about. And then, of course, I started doing my homework and learning about you. And uh, you've got some books here. I've got questions about we'll get into a little bit later, but... Um, I'm fascinated by your subjects of the of the books that you've written, and also you are a historian, and um, I have a special feeling for historians. My first wife uh, was a historian, and she taught advanced placement American history, and I really knew nothing about what historians do until 
she started teaching me, and up until her death, I was always getting information every day about history <laughs> and, and, and how and how things really how things really happened in the past. <laughs> Yeah. So I I think some of it rubbed off on me because I started learning to ask questions. You know, I I would I would just take that they said this is what happened, and yet I didn't have a context of why it happened and and who were the players, and and I've learned to question those type of things. So something obviously rubbed off while she, while she was here with us. Well, let's get started with you a little bit about your family. Where did you grow up? Okay, so I grew up in Sugar City, Idaho, and the name of the town came from its founding in the very early 20th century by the Utah-Idaho Sugar Company. So in contrast to the towns all around us in the Snake River country of Idaho, it wasn't a pioneer settlement. It was... Uh, kind of urban <laughs> for for that part of Idaho rather than being built around far, farming it was built around this um, new factory that was pretty much in the center of the town with a new rock meeting house uh, opera house bank this little kind of impressive main street and by the time I remember Sugar City, the factory was gone. But the history, you know, was all around us because you could still see the smokestack where the factory had been. And there was a sense of um, that it was kind of a special place. And we thought it was you know, like the land of Enoch. <laughs> we were very proud of our little tiny town and our high school. And where did you go to university? Um, I, unlike my siblings, um, my two older brothers and my younger sister all went to Rick's College, as did my mother, who went to Rick's Academy for high school. But I, I broke the tradition a little bit, uh, or maybe embraced another part of the family tradition in that I went to the University of Utah. Uh, my father and mother had both attended college there, and actually my grandmother oh. had gone to the University of Utah when it was still pretty much a high school in the 18, um, late 19th century. Now, you have a PhD, but that took place over many years because yeah. you, had, you had a family and children, and it just took time. Yes, yes. I, I met my husband, Gail Ulrich, at the university, um, and we were married... Um, between my sophomore and junior years of college, um, Gail had returned from a mission when I met him. Um, and he had, um, because he had gone on a mission, he was th three years older than I, he had um, one more year of undergraduate, but I have two. And so 
he stayed on at the University of Utah to do a master's degree um, during my senior year so that when we were ready to leave Salt Lake City, um, I would have my degree and, and he would be ready to move on. And the you know, in that period, you followed your husband. <laughs> yes. I mean, that, there wasn't any question that I was going to, I, I felt very privileged that I was able to finish my bachelor's degree because in that era, a lot of women didn't. Um, and our first child was born in 1960 in Boston, Massachusetts, and Gail had begun his PhD there in chemical engineering at the MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Well, now, what did you get your degree in, the bachelor's degree? I got my degree, I majored in English, and I had a minor in journalism. Okay. And so how many children do you have? I have five children. And um, while they were growing up, did you get back to school or did you wait till they, they grew up? Um, I did it piecemeal. Um, we lived, we pretty much never left Boston and uh, we stayed about 10 years in Boston with one year in California during that period. But after Gail finished his graduate work and had a little experience, um, he um, got a good position in the greater Boston area. So while I was in um, the Cambridge First Ward, um, I became really interested in improving my education, continuing my education in a pretty much part-time way. It was becoming a little bit more possible to do that by then as the feminist movement emerged and a, a small women's college in Boston called Simmons College. It was a lovely small um, college founded um, for women in the 19th century. And um, a friend of mine had done her undergraduate work there. And she said, why don't you take a look at Simmons? And so I did uh, what was essentially a one year master's degree, um, took me four years to do it. Uh, and, and it was lovely because most graduate programs in that area at that time, you just were full-time or nothing. And this one was very, very welcoming, particularly of their former graduates who faced the same difficulty I did in continuing my education and at the same time uh, raising my family. So I'm very, very grateful to 
wonderful mentor at Simmons who was so, so supportive of me through that um, four-year process. And during that time, I also did some writing, a um, couple of essays in the Relief Society magazine, and then our ward, our ward Relief Society, um, published a guidebook to Boston that became a kind of bestseller. It was pretty surprising to all of us. Um, collaborative project used to raise money for the church welfare program in our area. And, and that was very encouraging to me as well. Um, teaching me, um, you know, that you didn't have to, you involved with your family, but there were really enriching things that you could do uh, on a part-time basis. Well, now, what did you get your master's in? I, I it didn't have, it was a kind of master's that was, didn't require a thesis, a uh, lot of papers, and it was mainly designed to fill in things you hadn't worked on in your undergraduate degree. So there were quite a, quite a range of things. Um, I particularly loved the course on classics that I took with uh, Wiley Cipher, who was my advisor. I did a um, wonderful course on Chaucer, you know, some of the things that might not have been in that depth in an undergraduate. And then I did something, um, it's kind of embarrassing to say this. I managed to graduate from college without ever taking a history course. <laughs> I, I did my social science requirements with political science um, and my brother was a lawyer and, you know, I thought poli-sci was a good thing. And I did some other social science courses and I never took a history course. So at Simmons, I took an American studies course with an English professor at one end of the table and a history professor at the other end of the table. And we... We studied uh, the 1830s and the long, probably a, a, an almost an equivalent to a, a master's. I did a very long paper in that course and I, I smile. I mean, I, I was teaching Relief Society spiritual living lessons and we'd been reading the Doctrine and Covenants. So I did that paper on the Missouri persecutions. Mm. And, um, it, you know, one of the ways to build, build your um, repertoire is what I always tell my students, double dip, <laughs> try to coordinate. You know, I was doing one thing at church I was doing another thing in my classes and I brought them together and that greatly enriched my understanding of the Doctrine and Covenants and the fact that I had, you know, really 
gone through with a fine tooth comb the um, documentary history of the church um, helped me understand the 1830s. Well, then you went on to get your PhD, and if I remember reading right, um, your husband ended out at another university, and I guess you had free tuition? Yes. He, um, in 1970, we, we left um, the Boston area, and we moved to Durham, New Hampshire, which is about an hour and 15 minutes drive from Boston. So, you know, it's in the same general area of New England, although radically different setting, just a beautiful small college town. But I was close enough um, to Boston that, and that we, um, we maintained a lot of friendships in our old ward, and I worked on a lot of projects with uh, women in the Cambridge ward. We had collaborated in um, founding, um, well, we, we collaborated in publishing the first women's issue of Dialogue, which was a relatively new publication by then. We, uh, co-authored a uh, book on early Mormon women. Um, and we founded the still continuing um, periodical. It was a very handmade newspaper when we founded it in 1974. Now it's a very slick magazine, but exponent too. Um, so, you know, and to kind of reinforce my point, there, there was a kind of um, flow between my personal life, my church life, and my intellectual interest, one reinforcing and building on the other. Very, very fortunate. Well, it's an interesting how everything overlapped. Now, I'm <clears throat> looking at... Um, a House Full of Females. It's a book that you wrote. And um, t tell us a little bit about the book. Um, um, how did it come about? And um, what, what would you say is the main message of that book? Okay, A House Full of Females is my most recent book, published in 2017. And I, you know, can pick up on my previous point about how my personal life, my church life, and my um, intellectual life sort of merged. And when I started graduate school, I thought I would work on a Mormon topic, but that was not practical. <laughs> a small state university in New Hampshire um, in the 1970s. I, I just couldn't have done it. I wasn't able to travel with small children. The resources weren't in that library. Um, and so I became a historian of early America. And um, so I had written and published five major books 
before I turned back to that original interest in Latter-day Saint history. And the House Full of Females was my opportunity to now use the skills that I had developed over uh, many years um, and apply them to, you know, some of the some of the material that that our little group had explored in the 1970s in the little anthology called Mormon Sisters. But by then, there's the church history library now had become highly professionalized. It was possible to get many, many materials on online, digital copies, and then my family was grown and it was possible for me to spend time in the archives in Utah and elsewhere. And it was really a much, much um, better setting to do the kind of work that I did in a house full of females. Well, I, well I'm actually in the process of reading... Um... Brother Given's uh, book on intellect and faith, and mm -hmm. I learned quite a bit about there. He talks about uh, the women during uh, the 1800s, and um, that we, the church, actually Brigham Young encouraged the women to get medical degrees mm -hmm. and um, come back to Utah and and practice medicine and uh, to be involved in politics, and all of that was something that just wasn't done during that period of time. I don't even know where to start talking about um, a house full of females, but I maybe can just start with the problem that I tried to take on in that book, and that is... Um, it's, it's a fact well-developed and recently expanded on at great length by the Utah Project Better Days 2020, which was launched at the time of the centennial of the passage of the 19th Amendment. The 19th Amendment to the Constitution, which is the so-called women's suffrage amendment, was celebrated in um, 2020. And the project in Utah, which was called Better Days 2020, wonderful project, um, produced license plates, um, you know, vanity license plates that you could purchase that said, the first to vote. Um, and it was in fact true that Utah women were the first in the nation to vote. Wyoming legislature passed a women's suffrage, the territorial legislature of Wyoming passed a women's suffrage amendment in December 1869, and Utah passed it in February 1870. So that's just a few, you know, a couple of months difference, but Utah had a couple of elections before Wyoming. So Utah woman, women were, in fact, 
the first in the nation to legally vote. Um, and that's really fascinating. I find people are so surprised when they hear that. Lots of stereotypes about 19th century Mormon women. And how could that be? So the book begins by posing that question. How did these highly religious women um, who defended plural marriage become the first in the nation to vote? And of course, the answer is very complex. And I, I don't try to break it down into simplistic answers, but if I had to do that, I would say it was because of their development of very, very powerful networks among women who had discovered the capacity through cooperation and innovation to create a better, better lives for themselves, their families, and their larger societies. They, they knew how to operate as a group, not just as individuals within their own household. And so the book um, has the subtitle, uh, uh, Plural Marriage and Women's Rights in Early Mor Mormonism. And it goes from 1830 to 1870. So I start really with, um, in Kirtland, Ohio, with uh, some of the earliest um, women, um, Eliza R. Snow, Zina Huntington, Smith, Young, um, and, and especially Phoebe Woodruff, who, became the, the wife of Wilford Woodruff in, in Kirtland in the 1830s. We, we start in that period and then trace the core group of women who ended up creating and sustaining the Relief Society, the Young Women's Program, all of those organizations that we know about in the history of the church who supported women uh, going east to study medicine, who founded the first women's rights periodical west of the Mississippi, who did all those amazing, interesting things. But the book focuses more on what they did that we've forgotten, the earlier things, and it actually ends with the passage of women's suffrage. Well, I'm going to read just a bit here from a description of the book, and then I've got a question. A stunning and sure-to-be controversial book that pieces together through more than two dozen 19th century diaries, letters, albums, minute books, and quilts. What is a minute book? A book that um, takes down the proceedings of a meeting. And um, in, in the case of my book, I make use of Relief Society minute books. 
the most famous of which is began with Eliza R. Snow in Nauvoo in 1842 and was published um, in the, through the Joseph Smith Papers Project and is now readily available in, uh, in that format um, online in the Joseph Smith Papers website and also in the book, The First 50 Years of Relief Society. I had read the Nauvoo Minutes many, many years before that. Um, and did work with the manuscript minutes and certainly with the marvelous work of so many historians, um, Murray Nurson back and um, uh, Jill Durr, Jill Mulvader and Carol Cornwall-Madison and others who really pioneered the research on early Mormon women. So I knew those minute books mattered. And then I was able to um, get access to other minute books that had um, been kept and survived almost um, miraculously because the early church um, historical department, although they collected official church records, somehow the women were outside that system and they didn't collect those records early on. And so sometimes they survived in um, private collections um, kept by whatever woman kept the minutes. She ended up with the record and sometimes they found their way back to the church um, archives later in the 20th century. You also mentioned quilts, and I bring that up because my wife Amy is a quilter. And how did quilts figure into this research? I, um, I did one um, extremely complex book um, called um, The Age of Homespun, where I used women's textile production um, to define their participation in the larger economy. And that was a project on New England from the 1600s to about 1850. And um, I didn't really do much with quilts because um, the theme I was working with was about hand production, spinning and weaving, and also among indigenous women, uh, basketry, uh, which is a, a kind of weaving, a kind of textile. So I've always been fascinated with material objects as a way of learning about um, all aspects of women's lives. And I was really fortunate several years before I began my work on Latter-day Saint women, the University of Utah Press asked me to review a manuscript that they were um, plan hoping to publish by um, Carol Nielsen. 
which was a beautiful genealogical study of the more than 60 women who created a wonderful quilt for the Salt Lake City 14th Ward Relief Society. And that quilt uh, became a crucial um, source for my book. Um, thanks to Carol's work with the genealogical research, and then I was able to move beyond that by situating elements of the quilt um, into a larger framework about the situation in Utah in 1857 when the quilt um, was was finished and won first prize in the Utah Fair. Um, and that, of course, was the year of the announcement that Johnson's army was on the way. It was the year of the Mount Meadow Massacre. It was the year of the intensification of the so-called Utah Reformation. And then in terms of individual women who made the quilt really important. It was the year that Apostle Parley P. Pratt was murdered in Arkansas. Um, another of his wives was among the quilters. So it, it helped me to open up and connect these public events to the private lives of the women and to their organizational contributions within the Relief Society. Well, you mentioned you like um, things about uh, tangible things, and you actually wrote a book called Tangible Things. <laughs> yes. But I, I noticed another book here. I love the title, Well-Behaved Women Seldom Make History. <laughs> How did that book come about? Uh, that's another complicated story, but um, the phrase, the sentence, um, comes from the opening paragraph of my first published scholarly essay, which appeared in a um, scholarly journal called American Quarterly in uh, 1976. Um and I was writing about um, Puritan women and the sources I, um, that I used were um, little vignettes in funeral sermons. I mean, it was so hard to find those women. And um, in, when, when they were exemplary women, and when they died and the pastor preached a sermon, sometimes at the end of the sermon, he told us something about them. And I found so fascinating. Um, some of them have learned Latin. Um, some of them had written poetry. I mean, there were aspects of those women that um, in a nation which sorts of thinks of them as just being hung as witches or being too too godly to be remembered 
um, it was fun to find that material, but sort of tongue in cheek in that opening paragraph, I said something like, um, you know, they, they never sat on a deacon's bench or went to Harvard. They went to church even when it snowed. They didn't ask to be remembered and they haven't been. Well-behaved women seldom make history. So you find the that were hung as witches in the, in the 17th century, but you, you didn't know about the pious women and I wanted to find out about them. Um, but then 20 years later, when I was better known, um, uh, a uh, reporter uh, picked up that sentence and used it as an epigraph for a little book she wrote about um, unusual women in history. And she just picked up that quotation and used it. And then somebody put it in a book of quotations. And then a young woman thought it would be fun on t-shirts. <laughs> and she wrote and asked me if I cared. And I thought, well, what the heck? <laughs> Go ahead, print it on t-shirts. And, and by then the internet hit. And then suddenly, you know, it's the one sentence I'll probably be remembered for. <laughs> but uh, I didn't intend that. <laughs> Although I stick by my I stick by my words because um, until pretty recently, um, most of the work on women has has been only the few who end up with some kind of public profile and often, um, and they're often stigmatized and criticized, um, less so in our own time, but, but even think about what happens to women today who emerge in a very powerful way politically. Often they become targets in some way and um, considered, um, not well behaved. So it, I, I think it's a true statement, um, but it doesn't mean that ordinary women don't have, make a difference. It means that they're not written about and talked about um, historically. You being a student of the early American history in the church, what would you say is the main thing that you've learned in all your studies of, of the church and the early history? Oh, gosh. <laughs> there might be more than one. <laughs> there are lots of things. Um, I, one, of the, one of the most um, powerful to me is how, is how much Latter-day Saints were like other Americans. I mean, one of the most common charges and the most common themes in Latter-day Saint history is how weird Latter-day Saints were, how different, how there's a lot of 
uh, writing, were they really American? And then one of the big themes in um, writing about Latter-day Saints in sort of mainstream history is how they started out as um, in a kind of oppositional stance. They, they were considered, Utah was considered a theocracy rather than a democratic um, society and therefore Mormons couldn't be allowed to vote um, polygamy set them apart and attached them to other outsider groups like Muslims, American Indians, uh, non-white people everywhere. You know, this sense of the strangeness of Latter-day Saints or Mormons. And then their sudden uh, emergence in the 20th century is modeled. Americans. Um, and that's one of the big themes. And there's a lot of truth in that, if you look at it politically. Um, but if you look at it more on the ground, at the lives of individual people, I just, I, I felt like I was learning so much about 19th century common people in general when I was reading Latter-day Saint diaries and vice versa. There were, and then to take the example of polygamy, the 19th century was ripped apart about the meaning of marriage and reproduction. Very, very controversial, complicated questions everywhere. And many alternative societies emerging in the same period in which plural marriage emerged in the church. That is, the Latter-day Saint answers to these issues and problems had a lot of originality but they came out of very similar issues that were shared by other people. And so I'm, I'm reluctant to draw rigid lines in, in the way that maybe I grew up in the West, uh, imagining that we really were a people apart. And um, maybe it's my life experience with being a kind of oddball <laughs> in lots of places where people had never heard of the church. Um, but I think it's my study of history as well um, has helped me to find these common elements and common themes that are so important. The quest for family, the quest for what happens to my, for for spiritual confirmation, the, the quest for uh, understanding differences among races, you know, these kind of fundamental questions. And, you know, Joseph Smith's um, The Book of Mormon, people don't know how to read the Book of Mormon often because they don't understand that behind that is this deep yearning 
for a common humanity um, and a common relationship with God that crosses racial lines. And sometimes read the Book of Mormon just the opposite <laughs> about uh, a religion that divides people into good and bad people, but that's not a very good way to read the Book of Mormon. If we read it thoughtfully, we find very much the opposite, this uh, common humanity. I appreciate your comments. Um, I was just thinking here that um, as you study the scriptures, how does you being a historian affect your scripture study? And you kind of mentioned it as far as the Book of Mormon. Yeah, yeah, it affects it profoundly. And I think some of the most uplifting um, experience I've, I've had, I remember taking an amazing, amazing uh, course when I was a graduate student in New Hampshire on the age of the Reformation. Um, the Renaissance and Reformation and understanding, um, learning about Luther in depth, <laughs> imagining the, conf the different ways of seeing the world between Luther and Erasmus, the Enlightenment figure of the same period and the richness. I had a wonderful professor um, in that course, and and it it helped me to kind of open up my thinking in ways that um, was very very important. As I as then I went on and became a historian that worked in um, a period long before the uh, Joseph Smith was born and trying to understand the 17th and 18th century uh, ideas about God and faith. Um, so, but on the other hand, my experience as a practicing Latter-day Saint, attempting to um, apply the core principles of the gospel in my daily life have, uh, have had the, uh, the same kind of effect on understanding faith and faith and religion. Probably the foundational experiences I had in terms of scripture study were um, having had an amazing seminary teacher um, in high school um, and being at the University of Utah in the 1950s when Lowell Binion and T. Edgar Lyon uh, were the, the beloved teachers that they were. Um, and I learned from, from um, T. Edgar Lyon the importance of historical context to read the Doctrine and Covenants. I, I love the Doctrine and Covenants, and I attribute a lot of that to um, 
Brother Lion, who brought those things alive through context, and now especially with the amazing work in the Joseph Smith Papers projects, to be able to see the narrative that surrounds those important revelations. And then with Brother Benyon, knowing the difference between a central principle and all the stuff that gets added on, you know, being able to know the first and the second commandments without worrying about the 95 other ones <laughs> that get attached and understanding the difference between the priestly and the prophetic in the scriptures. Those kinds of things have guided my uh, scripture study. How do you study the scriptures? How do you approach them? Well, in both of those fundamental ways, context, context, context. I'm a chaser of cross-references. You know, the, the church has made it um, the easier in many ways with really terrific um, resources like, the, you know, the cross-references. Reading, reading and then going down below to look at the cross-references. And in an interesting way also, the cross-references in the hymn book, I don't know if anybody thinks of how useful those are, but they're kind of, kind of amazing. When I was in high school, I think I was a junior in high school, uh, my seminary teacher gave us an assignment, and I, I have no idea what that assignment was. What I know is what I did, and I... I uh, <laughs> I was like two weeks late handing in my assignment, but he forgave me uh, <clears throat> because I took on the impossible. I fancied myself as a writer, and I think the assignment was to write something about um, Passion Week. And he was way ahead of time now that, General Conference tells us we are to think about Passion Week. But he really focused on that um, in that seminary class. And I wrote in poetic, have to look and see how many pages it was, a poetic account of Passion Week. It's pretty terrible poetry. Um, but it was the best scripture study I ever did, and I think I had my father's copy of J. Reuben Clark's um, Our Lord of the Gospels, where he synchronized the four Gospels so you could see what Matthew said about X, where, where they were the same and where they were different. And I was a very joyous experience where I'd come home from school and get out that volume and then uh, I had a little tie I had my 
mother's typewriter, I think. And I, and I wrote those uh, long summaries. And I do a lot of similar things. I'm really blessed in having been, had lots of teaching callings in the church, including seminary. And so I study the scriptures. And I, I know there's a devotional quality to reading verse by verse and going through the each of the standard works in a given period of time. I've never been able to do that. Um, and to me, uh, my inspiration really comes from trying to um, trying to understand in context. And then, of course, the related to your own life um, is more interesting because you have a better sense of the context and and how each of these passages related to you know the Babylonian captivity or to the conflict in Missouri or or whatever it was and you understand the difference between the Jewish law the law of Moses and and the conversations that Jesus has with others well I thank you for all your comments honestly I could talk to you for the next few hours <laughs> But um, I also have an appointment coming up a little bit later, and I've got to get ready. So um, I really want to thank you for your time. I've enjoyed it, and um, I just uh, appreciate all your comments that you've made. And uh, there's something, I, I think people think that when a person's a historian, they just memorize dates. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Yeah, I have to look about. Yeah, and 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 I I learned from my wife that no, it has nothing little to do with dates, but a lot with context, context, and as as you pointed out, and yes, um, you know, studying for example something like Isaiah, it it becomes more meaningful and you understand it a lot better when you understand the political situation and look at the maps and understand and understand how people were living and and what what happened a hundred years before and and after and and so um i i appreciate when i speak to someone who's a historian because it just reminds me again and again how important context is well, I appreciate your time, and as I talk to you about uh, our pre-podcast uh, pre time, that um, I always ask my guests if they would mind bearing their testimony, and I would like to hear from you right now. Okay, I'm happy to do that. I'm extremely grateful for my testimony of the really fundamental premises of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the and the, and the reality of um, our 
Well, the, the access to revelation in all its many forms from the amazing foundation in scripture, but also around us. One of my favorite, favorite scriptures is the 88th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, and it, it's um, grandiose and maybe kind of inexplicable, but I feel like I understand it because it tells us that the light of Christ, the power by which the earth is made and sustained, is through and in everything around us, which um, means I look at the earth differently. I look at the discoveries about DNA differently. I look about, I, I look at Easter differently. We've just been through that. And to me, to understand Easter and to understand the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to understand the atonement, it's really important to pay attention to illness and human death and sorrow and daffodils and blossoms and the fox that runs across our backyard in the early morning and war and fear, maybe especially. Those things, I mean, these themes are also in the Book of Mormon, the opposition in all things that are fundamental. And not everybody thinks about the scriptures or the gospel in that way, but I've tried really hard in my life to be as whole as I can be. That is not to separate my work from my religion, my politics, from housekeeping, you know, to try to find some centering whole. And those scriptures help me do that. So uh, that's, that's my testimony. That, that we're here in this kind of great school of life and learning that we are all children of heavenly parents and that we have the opportunity to um, be bound together in love um, eternally. <laughs>